Well, if you were listening to that, that narrative in 1 Samuel, you'll see that it's rich and powerful, but in many ways, very troubling. It's a challenging passage. For we see here not only the story of Saul's failure as king, his rejection, and God's response. But I think it's fair to say that in reading this passage, many people are more troubled by what God asks of Saul than by Saul's disobedience. In the first place, God calls Saul to fight, and to fight in his name. I mean, the thought of preaching about holy war in this day and age seems absurd. I mean, our headlines almost every week seem to be about some event where people do horrific things because they are convinced that God told them to actually take up weapons against people in his name. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of a God who would call somebody to act like this? And how does it match the God of love that we see depicted in the New Testament? How does it match the teachings of Jesus that that call us to turn the other cheek and to forgive our enemies? But it's not just that. You know, that's not even the main point of this passage. I think we need to cover that. We need to talk about that. If we ignore it, I don't think we ever get to the main passage because we'll be so hung up on that idea of God calling Saul to this thing. But the further troubling thing in this passage is God's response to Saul. God's response to Saul's disobedience. Or, or maybe you might even say Saul's partial disobedience because he obeys all except for what might seem like a small detail. God can come across as as overly severe to poor Saul, punishing him for what seems like nitpicking at the details. This is alarming. Because sometimes it feeds into our idea of what God's holiness is all about. God's holiness is the central topic here. And so often our oppression of his, his holiness, it feeds into something like this where we say that God in his holiness really just is caring about dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. That he's exacting and serious. And a view like that constantly sets us up for disappointment and discouragement and indeed fear. But I want to suggest that that's not true Holiness. And that's not the holiness that he's calling us to. God's desire for his people is not to crush us. The idea of holiness is not to get more work out of us as if we're in charge of God's holiness. But the idea is to get more grace into us. And that's really at the heart of this passage. It's good news to us. We must deal with the things that trouble us But in the end, we need to see the beauty of this passage for us and the rich call to rest in God. So let's come now to this word. Will you join me? Let's ask God to, to bless it in prayer. 
Father, we do ask that you give us insight and wisdom into your word. Lord, you want us to understand it. You want, us, you want it to be clear to us, not a mystery. And so let us slow down. Let us try to understand. And let's try to fit this story in with the rest of your word and the rest of your plan of redemption. Give us uh, ears to hear and hearts to, to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 15 is the last of three chapters that recount Saul's sudden and dramatic fall, his failings as a king who started out so well, and then we see event after event that, that seems to just unravel. And key to his failure was his own independence, his independence from God. And this passage puts its finger on the central issue here by using the term, listen, to listen. It's a central theme that, if you pay attention, is, is there throughout. It's there in verse 1. Saul is told that his job as king is not to be the one at the top of the food chain and to be a law unto himself, but his job as king was to listen and to listen to God's appointed man, the prophet, to hear God's word. And the Old Testament idea of listening is not simply hearing things, it's to obey. Listening implied that you're also going to obey what the voice said. So that one, many people have said the central passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, what's often called the Shema, is hear, O Israel. Listen. The Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with heart and soul and strength. And so we see here a picture of Saul, who was called when he was appointed by God to listen, and now throughout cases where he doesn't listen. Verse 19, he did not listen. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. Verse 24, He didn't listen to the Lord's voice. He was listening to the people's voice. The only one that Samuel hears when he comes here is not the Lord's voice being listened to, but the sound of sheep and oxen. Now, Saul disobeys. He doesn't follow. And we might sit back and say, well, I'm not sure I would obey either. I mean, it's understandable that Saul didn't want to follow through with what God was asking him to do. Did you pay attention to God's command to him? Kill the Amalekites. Verse 3, kill man, kill woman, kill child, and infant. I can imagine most of us refusing to obey that command. How can a good God ask? such things. Doesn't that just feed the stereotype that God is not good? Or at least the God of the Old Testament is is bloodthirsty, morally questionable. How do we reconcile this? Well, to explore these issues, I want us to, to get to the point of this passage by looking at three questions. First, I want us to look at What really is God calling Saul to do? What's at the heart of this command that he gives? Secondly, what is Saul's sin? What 
what is it that Saul is doing that makes him fail here? And then finally, why does God respond the way he does? So let's look at that first one. Let's look at this command of God asking Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And if you've read a lot of Old Testament, or maybe you've heard many Old Testament stories in your background in Sunday school or just throughout, you might come with the assumption that this is common ground. God's people in the Old Testament always seem to be fighting. And we might just lump them in with this idea that they were primitive and barbaric. And their idea of following God always meant picking up a sword and, and destroying the, their enemies. And believing somehow that God was calling them to fight in his name. But you know, that's not the case. That's not common. This type of war, where Israel is called to go on the offensive, to attack, is not common at all. In fact, it's the very rare exception. There's only two types of war. There's only two types times when In the Bible, God calls Israel to an offensive war. Every other example and how God calls them to take up arms is defensive. This is laid out um, very explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 20, as God tells his people what it's like as a nation to fight battles. They are to first offer peace. They are... uh, um, volunteer service, that if you were at all have a scruple about going to battle or your own um, uh, obligations, that you can opt out of it and go home, fulfilling other obligations that you'd have. The battles here were to secure peace. They were forbidden to fight on the principle of vengeance. Leave justice to God in God's hands. It wasn't for them to take vengeance on things. And all the battles that they fought were only in one geographic space in this nation that God had given them called the Promised Land. So they weren't supposed to go off in this army and create an empire. They weren't defeating various places of the globe so someday that they could see the whole earth conquered by the sword. They were only to fight in this, within the borders of the nation of Israel. They were called not to own war horses or chariots. Those were offensive weapons. They were commanded in Deuteronomy 20 not to kill non-combatants, women and children. And so that is the common way that Israel is called to fight in the Old Testament. A rare time when the people of God, for one specific time, were called to serve as a type so that they also would have a government and an army and a nationality. And yet there was an exception to this. There was an exception for a unique type of battle. And there was a term that was used in the Hebrew. It was called harem. Harem is usually translated to devote something to the ban. God picks a people and he puts a ban on them. Uh, In our passage here, it's translated to devote to destruction in chapter 3. But the term is harem. That is a type of war that, that requires complete destruction. Not just of people, 
but of ox and sheep, livestock, all the wealth that's out there. They're to wipe it out. Now this is like so foreign to the idea of warfare in the Old Testament. Usually, uh, they go by the principle, other nations would go by the principle, to the victor go the spoils. You win the battle, then you're entitled to all the stuff of the people that you just defeated. If you defeated a nation, then help yourself to all the loot that they've got. The livestock and, and the possessions, the gold. The children become your slaves. The women become your concubines. But not so in harem. In harem, that's forbidden. You're to devote it all to this ban. And as I say, this type of warfare is rare. It was only, in the only other example of this, aside from our passage, is in the Canaanites. For God called Israel to go to this special land, the land of Canaan, as, as their promised land, as the place that they would be their new home, that they would set up as a place devoted to God. The problem is somebody else was living there. The Canaanite people were all throughout that land. And so when God called them to enter into this land, they needed to wipe all of the people and their possessions and their culture out of that land. Why? Well, the idea to destroy all was because Israel would quickly, if they didn't, be influenced by them and would drift away. In their new home, they would drift away from God. Their hearts would cling to these new things. I mean, when, when we bought our house, um, we found a lot of stuff that our previous owners had left. I remember you know, uh, getting open this painted shut door to find a stack of old 70s funk LPs and bowling trophies. It was a treasure trove. Don't ask me for them. They're no longer in my possession. But, um, but imagine you buying a house and going into the basement and find, finding boxes of stuff. And, you know, you look through it, and, well, oh, there's a book about how to cheat on your taxes. That's interesting. Or, hey, there's some racy movies here. Hmm. Maybe there's some other substances in that box. And, you know, you just sort of leave the box in a corner for a while. And I'm going to get rid of it later. And after a while, you know what, maybe I'll just try out some of the things. Very quickly, you adopt the practices. Indulge. Dabble. And that's the very thing that happened to the Israelites. As they enter the land of Canaan, they don't destroy the whole of the Canaanites. And very soon, they started intermarrying. And the, they, their hearts went away to the gods of their spouses. And they became, rather than God worshippers, the worshippers of the Canaanite gods. They very quickly left the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, and they needed prophets to come in and rebuke and challenge them. And so that is the typical idea of harem, this holy war that God calls his people to, this unique type of war. But now we face a different group, the Amalekites. These are nomadic people. What, what are they? Who are they? They might seem to be lumped in with all the other people that, that have strange names in, to our ears. Who are the Amalekites? 
Well, they were Israel's first enemy. God, in his great redemptive act, the act of the Exodus, the act that is supposed to to really be that type of salvation, of God's plan of redemption, right as soon as God brings them out of Egypt, it was the Amalekites who attacked. And the Amalekites not only just attacked them head on, they waited and they attacked at the rear, picking off those stragglers. It was a cowardly fight. It was one that drew the ire of God. So much so that in Deuteronomy 25, God tells them, never forget the Amalekites. Never forget them. That day when, God, when I settle you into the land, go after them and destroy them. And the Amalekites really didn't change much over time. In verse 33, we see that they were doing some heinous things, including killing children. So put it into a different perspective. To frame the whole thing, the Amalekites stood as a symbol, as a threat to God's redemptive plan. They stood as all people that would oppose the gospel and God's hope of salvation for his people. And so symbolically, God calls them to destroy, to devote to the ban, the Amalekites. And so first we see this call in Saul as really a call to stand up against the threats to Israel's faith. Saul should see himself not simply as one little servant among things, but as the shepherd of God's people. He was responsible for Israel's faith. And so any threat to Israel's faith, he should stand up against and put down. He needed to protect his flock. And if we see this in the context of all of Scripture, Agag, this king, the king of the Amalekites, has a descendant. And the descendants of Agag trouble Israel throughout their entire history from here on out. We get to the book of Esther, and many of you remember Haman, that wicked guy who's trying to wipe out completely the people of God. Haman is a descendant of Agag. And so Saul's failure here isn't simply missing a detail. It's neglecting his duty to care for the flock that God has given him. To allow a threat to come in right at the the key point of the gospel of faith. But secondly, this is called to Saul to honor God's holiness. Harem is, is... Basically, God coming in and bringing final day judgment. It is God's prerogative to judge. And it's only God's prerogative to judge. But he is to judge. He has promised that on the very last day, the last day of human history, he will judge. And he will bring righteousness that evil will be put down and wickedness punished. Now, it is a rare thing when that judgment gets brought into this life. It's a rare thing. I mean, sometimes we can uh, sadly associate common things that might happen, tragedies that might happen as God's judgment. That's not God's judgment. It is an extraordinarily rare thing when anything that even echoes God's judgment comes into this world. 
In fact, the key time when we saw that inbreaking of even just an echo of God's judgment was at Noah and the flood, where God, you know, coincidentally enough with our passage, was the last time God was said to regret anything. He says he regrets making Saul king. There he said he regretted having humanity, creating humanity. But that's an inbreaking, a shadow of judgment day. Come on to the earth. Harem, God breaking into the world to bring justice. And what do we have if we lose this? I mean, however troubling the idea of God bringing judgment is, what do we have if we don't have a God who does this? What if we have a God who, who winks at sin? You know, oftentimes we're troubled when horrific things happen and say, well, where was God? Why doesn't God punish that? Well, foundational to the God of the Bible is a God who keeps accounts, who will not forget, and who will uphold righteousness and justice. But that's also key for the hope that we have as Christians. This is what happened on the cross. God brings forward that judgment day onto one event so that all of our sin, all the sin of the people that put their hope in Christ, all the sin is then placed on Christ for God to execute his just judgment on it and to put it to death. Amen. Because if that is true, then God's justice has been served so that the judgment day you have to look forward to All your sins are accounted for. That God can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have a righteousness that is not your own, but is now credited to your account. Enter into my rest. You are holy. It is God's justice that brings that judgment. It is his righteousness that secures grace and mercy for us. But it's always God's judgment. And whenever it's brought forward, even if it's brought forward into the Old Testament with Harem, it's always God doing it. And that's a crucial point. You see, it isn't Israel who's exacting justice or casting revenge. It is never man's place to condemn. It's never man's place to bring judgment. It's not our place to step into God's shoes to people that we see doing wrong. That type of judgmentalism has no place. It's not our place to presume God's final destination for somebody. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. This understanding actually is wonderful news for us. For if we believe that God will hold accounts, then what does that leave for us? If it's not for us to hold vengeance and justice, well then what can our response be? If we know that's taken care of, do you see? That means I can love. That means I can forgive. That means I can show mercy. Because I'm not consumed with needing to exact punishment or revenge. That means I can love my enemies. Because any type of justice that needs to happen 
is not in my hands and must not be in my hands. It's in the only hands of the righteous judge. Amen. So that's the answer to the first question. What is God asking Saul to do? God asks Saul to be an extension of his own holiness, a tool, an instrument. And holy war is God acting to extend his holiness into this land and to this people. And so that frames this second question. What was Saul's sin? How does he fail? One of the reasons we can read these narratives and feel so sympathetic to Saul, I don't know if you've been that way, but I know for me, many times I've read these stories, and you just sort of break, your heart breaks for Saul. You feel like he's just not getting it. But that's part of the reason we feel sympathetic. He doesn't understand the nature of his own problem. Sadly, he should know he's sinning, but he doesn't. He thinks he's doing all that's asked of him. Samuel comes to him. Samuel, knowing that God has rejected him. And Saul's response in verse uh, verse, uh, 13 is completely oblivious. Do you see what he says to Samuel? He says, oh, bless you. I have performed all that God's asked of me. Pardon me while I pat myself on the back for being such a good you know, faithful guy. And he's shocked when Samuel drops the hammer on him. But it wasn't Samuel saying, hey, you didn't go the extra mile. You should have, you know, it's not, God is looking, hey, look, you missed a spot. (laughs) You didn't kill these people over here. That's not the point. He's pointing out that Saul obeyed but really his obedience was a selfish obedience. Saul just obeyed for himself. On the one hand, Saul keeps these oxen and these sheep, not because Saul's merciful. I mean, he had no trouble killing all the Amalekites. He kept them for himself. This idea that he was going to sacrifice them, that's even cheap. The sacrifice that he mentions here is a sacrifice that lets Saul eat the flesh of all of them, the peace offering. So he was going to have a big party with the the sheep of these others. But that was totally against the idea of Haram. This wasn't for him. He spares King Agog. Why? Well, probably because he saw himself in that. Oh, hey, here's another king. And just so we get the message out that we should treat kings with honor, let's let's take care of this nice guy so that nobody would assume that you, you can actually kill a king. But further, Saul's problem was that he was still trying to manage his own righteousness before God. He's still treating these commands that God gives him as like a hoop you have to jump through. That he needs to be approved by God, so he will do all of these things. And he expects then God to thank him for it. He can't understand this principle that's there in verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You can imagine him saying that and say, what's the difference between obedience and sacrifice? Aren't they the same thing? Do you know the difference? Can you discern the difference between obedience and sacrifice? It reminds me of this popular story by Charles Spurgeon. He tells the story of a gardener who um, grew the greatest carrot that uh, he had ever grown. And he presents it to the king and he says, This is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown and will ever grow. 
And out of my devotion and love for you, I give it to you and honor you, O king. And the king responds with uh, just a moved heart. and says, this is wonderful. Thank you for it. In reward, I will give you uh, the land that's adjacent to yours, doubling your wealth, overwhelming him with the grace and gratitude. And there's a nobleman in the court who sees what's going on and says, wow, if that's what a big carrot gets you, uh, what, what, what would a really good gift give you? So he brings this huge stallion to the king and says, hey, king, um, I bring you this nice, beautiful, big stallion. It's for you. The king knows what's going on. And he simply takes the gift and says, thank you. And he could see the nobleman's really troubled by this. And he's distraught. And so the king says, well, look, look, let me explain to you. The farmer was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. That's the difference between obedience and sacrifice. That's the difference that, that Samuel and God is trying to give to Saul here. Saul could not see the problem because he didn't know that his failure was not just a simple mistake. Not that he's just slipping up in one area, that God was trying to get him to obey perfectly in all things. No. He was demonstrating that he was never obeying God. He was using his religion to serve himself. But very much so, he was still independent. He's still dutifully doing God's commands but doing them in such a way to keep God at a distance. This is why Samuel says, Saul, your actions are like divination and idolatry. That's what he calls it in in verse 23. That doesn't make a lot of sense. How is the failure to slaughter sheep idolatry? Or how is the preservation of King Agog divination, uh, which is false prophecy? It doesn't make any sense unless you can understand that really what Saul was doing was creating his own religion. He was doing idolatry. He was doing all the things that were related to Israel's faith, but he was doing it to serve himself as God. We can play this game too, can't we? We give God a little bit of service think, hey, God, you're content with that, right? And then the rest of the time, I've given you yours, now the rest of the time is mine. I'll give you your 10%. Yeah, God, that's yours, all yours. Go ahead and do it. 90%, whoo, don't you touch that. That's for me to play with. I've given these actions. You, could, you know, you've, you've gotten this. That's my best efforts. That's even the cream of my crop. That's, that's hard labor I've given for you, God. But just don't tell me what to do with this other labor, this other energy. That's mine. Saul's obedience seemed to match almost perfectly what he was asked to a particular point. But that particular wedge of difference showed that he never gave things to God. It was always only for his religious obedience. Further, Saul didn't take his role as king seriously enough. Samuel rebukes him, and Saul gets defensive. He blames the people. He throws the people that he's supposed to be king over, he throws them under the bus. Verse 15, he says, you know, it was the people. They wanted to keep the sheep for themselves. 
even though verse 9 says it was actually him. And then Samuel challenges him in verse 17. He says, Saul, you're little in your own eyes. Now, he's not saying, Saul, you're humble. He's saying, Saul, you don't realize the position God put you in. He gave you responsibility to other people. We have responsibility. We are a community of God. We're to love and support and care for each other. We're to preserve the gospel in this place. We take vows to protect the purity and the peace. We can't just say, oh, sorry, they did those bad things. We're united to each other. My faithfulness depends in large part on your support and encouragement. Now, God working through you, yes. But just as I have a responsibility with you, you do with me. It's the family God's called us to. Saul throws them under the bus. He rejects God's call as a spiritual leader. And so in sum, he rejects God's attempts to use him. He shows no regard for God's holiness, and he's apathetic to the things that threaten Israel's faith. And so look at, let's look at God's response. That's the third point. What is God's response, and why does he respond the way he does? Not just the rejection of God as king, I mean of Saul as king, um, but there's also this complicated matter of this word regret. We're told that God regretted Saul. That's in verse 11 and verse 35. Some translations say even that God repented of Saul being king. How can God repent of anything? How can he regret anything? I mean, he knows all things. It's all his plan. Chapters 9 through 11 bend over backwards to say that Saul was God's choice. He's the one that selected him. Was he surprised that Saul all of a sudden loses it? Didn't he see this coming? Is he fickle? Did he like Saul on the one hand, and now when he messes up a little, is he angry? And even more confusing is verse 29 that says, God, the glory of Israel, does not regret, for he is not a man. Okay, (laughs) slow down here. (laughs) Chapter 15, one chapter, God both regrets, and also God is not one who regrets. You got that? All right. I want to suggest that that's a very intentional move by the author here. First of all, he wants to shock us to understand that that God is uh, making a bold claim when he says that he regretted Saul as king. It's a bit of a shocking language to make us feel uneasy, and it shouldn't be softened. But it also communicates a reality about God, one that's easy to overlook when we just think of holiness in our misunderstandings. God is personal. God is personal. God's holiness and his complete control over all things, his knowledge of the future and his plans in the future, should never allow us to think that God is indifferent or uncaring about sin or about us. God is not an arbitrary force of nature that comes sweeping through and doesn't care what you've done or who you are. God's not like that. He's not like a hurricane in that way. 
His character is not like that. Perhaps another way to translate this is grief. God's response is grief. This is exactly how Saul, imitating God, or maybe reflecting God in his prophetic role, grieves, mourns. He knew what Saul would do, but God grieved. Because Saul's action brought God sorrow. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind when he writes in Ephesians 4 that that, uh, you can grieve the Holy Spirit with your sin. God can be sorrowful. And yet, God is not fickle or reactive. He doesn't waver in his mood. That's the point of verse 29. It says God will not regret. You see, God is always consistent in himself. His holiness doesn't change, but we change. And that's that's a consistent message here. When God's holiness encounters things that are wonderful and beautiful, when God's holiness encounters Christ's righteousness, God is pleased. When he encounters rebellion and disobedience, God's holiness, the proper response, is anger. When God sees his children wandering from him, his response is grief. It's completely consistent in who he is. He doesn't change but as those are the proper responses to things that come to him. He's not reacting. He doesn't get flustered. He's the same. And yet his holiness and his righteousness and his response is not mechanical or robotic or impersonal or indifferent. When we talk about God's holiness, it's not that God is straight-laced and cold and precise. He's not a stickler for the details. God is holy in his uniqueness, which means he's free to be himself. And God's glory and his beauty all show that he's incomparable. Now Saul's problem wasn't that he just missed a detail over here about keeping some things alive. It was that he didn't care about who God was. He treated him like a taskmaster who was arbitrary. He didn't give him self fully to God. His obedience was in service to God, but never for God. And this is the heart of holy war. This is the heart of haram, to be an instrument used by God, but to give all things to God. And it's a call to us today, even as we're called to holy war. So let's think a moment about how this applies to us. Holy war. Now, we are clearly, explicitly not called to take up weapons to fight for holiness. Let's let's get that straight. The New Testament says that Christ's kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. We do not achieve holiness by force. We're not to fight the way the world fights. Israel had its unique time as a nation. But we are called to fight. We are called to a war for holiness. The amazing thing about God's holiness is he just doesn't keep it for himself. He extends it to all of us who are his children. He grants us this call to be holy. We are on a mission. We are on a mission to fight. Ephesians 6 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we partake in a spiritual warfare. 
Romans 8 says, if you live by the Spirit, you must put to death sinful deeds that are in your body. And that passage that we heard from Colossians says that we need to do some combat, some bloody combat here. We need to put to death the deeds of the body, Paul says. Put to death the things that are earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, if we get the wrong idea of holiness, as if it's our job to protect God's holiness, as if it's our mission to be made perfect ourselves, then that's going to be suffocating. If my idea of holiness is an expectation that God wants me to achieve moral perfection on my own, then we will be overwhelmed. Now, you might start out well. You might say, well, I'm a Christian now. I can get rid of this sin and I can really rid myself of these bad habits. Maybe I'll, I'll throw in some good habits after a while. But then pretty soon, you start to fail. You start to get discouraged. You start to see your own weakness and the enormity of sin around you. And if you felt that, you begin to hate the idea of holiness. It begins to hound you. We begin to see it as our taskmaster. A call for us to master our own sin. We will feel defeated by this idea of holiness. And we will hate holiness. And we will throw ourselves back to a merciful God. And say, God, please give me the gospel. Now the gospel should be sweet in these situations. But it shouldn't be at the sacrifice to a call to holiness. But see, here's the key. We've misunderstood holiness if we think it's our job. The call to holiness is not a call for us to master our own sin. It isn't being called to muster your own willpower to find moral perfection in this life. Holiness, you see, is not our doing. It's God's. Holiness is a call to let God work on us. To give ourselves over to His work. To be devoted to Him. Theologian John Webster puts it this way. I put this quote in the front of your bulletin. He says, Faith is that human emptiness which lets God and God's work be, which receives what God is and what God does, which says yes to God, God's electing and judging and purifying. This is your call to holiness. This is your call to holy war. Not to purge, your, purge sin on your own power, but to say yes to God in all areas of your life. This is how we fight spiritual warfare. It's a strange kind of fighting, I grant you, because it's both offensive and it's completely passive. Your call to holiness is called to an offensive passivity or being passively offensive. Your head's spinning, I know. But this is exactly where Saul failed. He looked at God and said, well, this is my task to do. But he was completely independent in his aggressiveness, in his actions, in his dutiful obedience. He was completely independent from God. God didn't want sacrifice from Saul. He wanted Saul. He wants you. 
He wants all of you. We need to, not to think about defeating certain sins, but rather we need to think which area of our life are we saying no to God in? Where is your no? Where is your no? God, you can have this area. You can have, you know, my, my time on Sundays. You can have, you know, a lot of uh, my efforts and work during the week. But no, you do not touch work. You do not touch my career ambition. Perhaps your no is your kids. God, you can do what you want with anything else. Don't mess with my kids. Where's your no? Is it your plans for retirement? Vacation? The life you think you deserved and earned? Where's your no? Is it relationships? That relationship that you know is not healthy for you? God, you can take a lot of other things. I'm going to serve you all I want. But don't touch that. Call to holiness is to be passively offensive. You've got to be offensive. Attack. But it's an attack that says, God, come into this area. It's yours. It's giving over constantly every area. Getting rid of the no's. Saying, God, yes, even here. God, I'm scared. I don't want you here. But yes, here. Is it that sin that you just like to coddle? Say yes to God. Yeah, you can have that. Like Saul, sometimes we're, we're wait, willing to give a little here and there. We hope that God will be satisfied with our efforts because it's really the best we can do. But really, that's a no. God's calling you to say yes. Yes, do whatever you want with all of it. This passive offensive war is real spiritual holy war. It isn't found from running from the world. We don't get holy by fighting the world or running from it, but by turning over ourselves to him, saying yes, and knowing that he has now won the war, the complete war, so that on that day, he can present you as Paul's vision of the church as he always goes back to saying, present you holy and blameless, before God. Let's pray.